Sometimes you start going down one road and you realize you gotta call an audible. It just isn't gonna work. So, so last week we started talking about spiritual rhythms. And if you remember the reason we're talking about this is because we really, we have spent a little time over the summer thinking about the idea that we live in a culture that is marked by things like individualism and relativism and materialism and sort of a sexual freedom of expression, racial division, that these are kind of key markers of our cultural environment. And the question that we're asking as a church is, well, then how do we create a counterculture? How do we as a church create a group of people, a pocket of people living in the context where we live that are living in such a way that it speaks to a different way of life and a better way of life? And, and uh, we wanted to think deeply about that. And so one of those rhythms that's so deeply important, and I thought it was valuable to press into it a little bit at the beginning of the school year, which most, a lot of us are living along the rhythm of the school year. If we're students, if we have kids in school, those kinds of things that we think a little bit about the pace of our lives. Because one of the countercultural rhythms that we want to have as a church and that we would say as a follower of Jesus, if you are that, if you are a follower of Jesus, we would say one of the countercultural rhythms that you need in place in your life is that you need to be adopting spiritual rhythms in your life that create margin, that create margin, that you would live, maybe the simple way to put it is that you would live uh, with a certain set of pace, with a certain type of pace and a certain set of practices. That's, what I, that's how I define spiritual rhythms, pace and practices that, that create margin in your life and help you think a little bit more uh, deeply about who God is and what he's done in Christ. And so we wanna talk about that a little bit. Last week, we talked about the why. I mean, I just tried to make a, uh, hopefully a decent argument why we need these types of spiritual rhythms. And today we wanna talk about what that looks like. But whenever I think about spiritual rhythms, I can't help but think about connect the dots. Anybody do connect the dots when you were young? I do all these connect the dots type pictures. So let's just do a, like, I'll tell you why I think about that when I think about spiritual rhythms, but let's do a little exercise of connect the dots. Tell me what, what is drawn through these connect the dots. Let's start with the first one. That's a heart. You guys are good. You passed kindergarten. Well done. All right, next one. What's that? A four-leaf clover. And they cheated because they gave you the stem and they drew line from one to 24. I don't know why. All right, what's the third one? A star. And where I come from, we call that a cowboy star. Okay. Every time, every time. It's okay, Eagles fans, you've won one. Congratulations. When you get to five, let me know. It's not in the notes, I'm sorry. Stick to the script. And then uh, this is a more complex one. You've seen some of these complex ones. We can go to the next one. Yeah, the Mona Lisa. Can you believe that's a connect the dots? Right, that's just a bunch of dots being connected that makes the Mona Lisa, right? And there's all kinds of interesting complex ones. I tried to find a before and after for that one, but it didn't work. Let me tell you why I think about connect the dots when I think about spiritual rhythms. Because you knew what all of those shapes were. Now they were simple ones, right? Uh, you knew the heart, you knew the star, you, know, you knew the clover, and you knew them because as you look at the dots, you know what picture is intended to be drawn just by looking at those dots, right? Well, I think spiritual rhythms are a lot like the dots in a connect the dots. The rhythms that you put in place in your life, the practices that you put in place as regular rhythms that you do them over and over again, they are the dots that end up determining what picture will be drawn with your life. And if you want a cross-shaped life, if you want a life that paints a picture that looks like Christ, then you're gonna have to put the right spiritual rhythms in place. And if you'll do that, it will go a long way those spiritual rhythms will go a long way to creating a picture of your life that looks like Christ looks. 
that you will connect those dots and it will create a certain type of life. If you don't put those rhythms in place, it's like trying to draw a picture of a Christ-like life, but without any dots to, to connect with which to make that picture happen. Do you follow that? Are you with me? So what we wanna talk about today is how do you put those dots in place? What do those rhythms look like? And I wanna talk about three things in particular. Now, you remember last week we talked about our reasons why we need spiritual rhythms were that they pull us out of our consumeristic ways. So we saw that if we'll put rhythms in place in our life, in particular rhythms of fasting and generosity, that it will, it will counteract the cultural sort of pull. The gravitational pull of our culture is one towards materialism and one towards consumerism. And in order to be different, you really have to be so intentional about putting rhythms of fasting and generosity in place. The second reason we saw why we need spiritual rhythms in place or that they make us wise. And if you remember, we looked at Psalm 73 and we saw that the psalmist had gone uh, to complain really to God and to say, it just seems like the wicked are prospering and all is lost and I, I kind of don't know what to make of what I see around me. But in the middle of the psalm, it says that he entered into the temple. He entered into the presence of God in prayer. And when he did, it completely changed his perspective. And he began to see and speak about things as they truly were from God's perspective rather than how he saw them from his perspective. And I would, give, I would offer that that's a pretty decent definition of what it means to be wise, to see and speak about things as they truly are from God's perspective. And so we see that when we put spiritual rhythms in place like prayer, it makes us wise. And I've yet to run into the person that says, I'm happy to be foolish, right? That we want to be wise. The third reason why spiritual rhythms are so important that we touched on last week was that they train us to trust God. They train us to trust God. Now, I would love to tell you that it's my natural response, my knee-jerk reaction in the difficult circumstances of my life is just to trust God. But I have to tell you that I have to fight to trust God in so many different circumstances. Would you agree that there are times in your life where you have to fight to trust God? And the thing that I'm learning more and more is that in order to do that, I have to train myself to do it in advance of the hard circumstances. And the way I train myself to trust God is that I engage in specific spiritual rhythms that I put in place in my life over and over and over again. In particular, one that we're gonna talk about today, which is Sabbath rest, that when I will partake of that, I grow in my ability to trust God because I'm training myself to do it. And we'll talk about how it is that Sabbath rest causes trust of God to grow in our lives. But don't, don't make the mistake of thinking that trust in God should be your natural, you know, knee-jerk reaction, your natural bent. It does take training to do that. So we've talked about those reasons why, and now today, like I said, we just wanna talk about the what. Like, what does that look like? Here at the outset of the school year, when there's gonna be a lot of things that pull for your time and pull for your attention and invite you to sort of just react to them and say, oh, that opportunity is presented to me or that thing needs my attention and then just to react to do that, what might it look like as we begin, if we began this school year with a really intentional approach to the rhythms we put in place in our life so that we made our yeses and our noes to the things that call for our time and call for our attention in an in a intelligent and wise way because we have put in place these dots right, that are the kind of the first things on our schedule. And that's really the first lesson I want you to get today is we talk about, we're gonna talk about three spiritual rhythms. Fasting as a spiritual rhythm. We're gonna talk about Sabbath rest as a spiritual rhythm. And, and to be honest, I don't know that we'll get to the third one with time. Uh, is community, you, I see the smiles, you know. It's just me, right? So I, every Friday I wrap it up and I go, I think I can get that much done. 
And every Sunday I prove myself wrong. So we're gonna try and talk about those three. At the very least, we will do, I think, a very diligent job of talking about fasting and Sabbath rest because in particular, I think that those things, those rhythms, there's a lot of different spiritual rhythms we could talk about, right? We could talk about generosity, talk about prayer, talk about Bible study. Um, But I think those three in particular, Sabbath rest, fasting, and, and, and intentional deep relationships, community, as we call it, that those three go further in helping us have a pace of life that is healthy emotionally and spiritually than perhaps any other rhythms. That those three create uh, an intentional and a really good health in our walk with the Lord. Now that being said, here's what I want you to understand. If you hear this sermon and you say, those are some nice ideas about spiritual rhythms, I'll add that on to what I'm already doing, it won't work. What we're talking about now is putting rhythms in place that are your first priority. They are the things around which you build your schedule. So as I talk about fasting, as I talk about Sabbath rest, as I talk about community, and I could talk about prayer, right? The thing that I'm gonna urge you to do and to think about is to say, how do I build my schedule and my life around these rhythms so that everything else is built off of them? Rather than saying, those are some good ideas and practices, I'll tack that on to what's already taking place in my life. Do you see the difference between those two things? If you do the latter, these rhythms won't have much effect. But if you do the former and say, these are the first priorities of my calendar, these are the first priorities of my practices, and nothing else will get moved, right? So, I mean, just to use prayer as an example, if you say, I will begin every day in prayer, and I will make a habit to get longer extended half days of prayer at least once a quarter in my year, and I will build my calendar around the idea that every day I wake up and I will have time in prayer. And then every quarter, I will determine that I will have a half day where I get away and I am with the Lord for a full four hours. And that I build my yearly calendar around that idea. That's, and I don't allow those to go off my calendar. I say no to other things that might interfere with those as opposed to saying, well, you know, I can really forego that and say yes to this thing. That they're the thing that doesn't get moved off the, off the schedule. You with me? Okay, great, fantastic. Last thing I gotta say before we talk about fasting is just this. I'm gonna offer you a lot of ideas and suggestions, but I wanna make sure that we avoid the danger of just walking out of here having received a moralistic sermon. And I don't know, some of you know what I mean when I say that, some of you may not know what I mean. The goal of this is that we would engage in these rhythms so that we would adore Christ more and that it would fan the flame of faith in him in our hearts not that we would walk out with a set of practices where we go, I'm gonna be good enough and strong enough and disciplined enough to do these things because all that will do is make you more self-righteous, more holier than thou. It will not build deeper trust in the Lord. It will not cause you to have more affection for Jesus. It will only cause you to have more affection for yourself because you're disciplined enough to do those things. Now, discipline's a good thing, right? Rhythms are a good thing, but I just wanna make sure that we understand that we are not aiming at rhythms for the sake of rhythms. We are aiming at rhythms for the sake of being satisfied more fully, more adoringly in Christ himself. That's the point of all of them, right? So those things said, let's kind of tackle these. Let's talk about the first one, fasting. Let's talk a little bit about this. My guess is that this may be a new one to you, or maybe you practiced it a little bit, but you kind of have wondered a little bit about it. But let's look at Matthew chapter six, verses 16 through 18. 
And it's gonna give us some thoughts. So the first question we wanna ask is what do we need to understand about fasting in order to build it into our life as a rhythm, build our life around it as a rhythm? So Matthew 6, 16 through 18, this is Jesus speaking in this famous uh, sermon that he gives called the Sermon on the Mount. And he says this, he says, and when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. So already we see that he's making an assumption that we would fast when he says when you fast. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your father who is in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. So a couple of things there. The first thing that we see from just three verses, Jesus gives us a ton of instruction on fasting. I and mean, there's, there's, that's a deep well there, those three verses. And the first thing that we can see is actually not from what he says there, but the context in which he says it. So if you were here last week, you remember that the verses that are immediately after this are the verses we read when we talked about materialism and our consumer-driven habits. And that Jesus says in the verses, right after these verses about fasting, he says, you cannot, he says, don't store up or lay up treasures for yourself on earth, but lay them up for yourself where? In heaven. And then he closes that little section of teaching by saying, you cannot serve both God and money. And so we really talked about the mutual exclusivity of the idea of serving God and serving money, that essentially it's, it is, uh, it's mutually exclusive, the idea of being consumeristic and materialistic and being a follower of Jesus, that the two just can't go hand in hand. But right before he talks about that idea, right, which is a very countercultural idea for us in a consumer-driven environment and culture, right before that, he has these, this teaching on fasting. Now let's, you know, connect the dots, right? Why does he talk about fasting right before he talks about not being driven by love of money? Because he recognizes that this is a key spiritual rhythm to help us obey the command that he's gonna give to not lay up treasure on earth, but lay it up in heaven. To not love money, to not serve money, but to serve God. In other words, what he's saying is, let me preemptively give you a rhythm that if you will partake of it and do it in the way that I intend, it will really help you in terms of obeying now what I'm gonna command of you, which is to not serve money, but to serve me. You follow me, church? So the context is the, sort of the first thing that we see that fasting is this important discipline when it comes to being able to rid ourselves or divest ourselves of a consumer-driven way of life. The second thing we see in this text is when Jesus says, I wanna focus in on that phrase where he says, your father who sees in secret will reward you. Now, I love that because what Jesus is saying is when you fast, what you are doing is you are pursuing a reward from God. In other words, you are teaching yourself through fasting to hunger for the things of God and his pleasure more than the pleasures of the world. That's a big part of what the discipline, the rhythm of fasting exists to do in our life, to teach us to disconnect ourselves from the pleasures of the world and to connect ourselves to the things that please God and to seek pleasure in him. Now, a question that you might ask as you read that is, is to say, well, what is the reward? It says, if I fast and then I do it in this way, the, the primary marker of the way he instructs us to fast here is to do so privately, to do so not in a public fashion where I say, hey, everybody, look at me, check me out, this spiritual dis discipline that I'm practicing right now. He says, just be quiet about it. This is between you and the Lord. It's not something you need to broadly uh, 
broadcast, publicized, right? And so as he's talking about that, and kind of giving the instructions around it, he says, and your father who sees in secret will reward you. So the question would be, well, what's the reward, right? What's the reward that we're gonna get if we're gonna partake of this discipline in the way that he calls us to do it? And we can go to Luke chapter four, I think, to get a little more insight on that. Luke chapter four, verses one through four, and you can look there, I'll just kind of summarize it for you. Jesus has been in the wilderness. He's been fasting for 40 days. He's now coming out of that wilderness. And you may remember this scene. It's a relatively famous one in the Bible uh, where the, the temptation of Satan, Satan comes to tempt Jesus. And the first temptation in those first four verses of Luke chapter four, he says, why don't you turn this stone into bread? Now that, that would be pretty tempting if you hadn't eaten for 40 days, yes? And Jesus' response is really brilliant. Jesus' response is to say, man does not live or shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. In other words, what Jesus is saying is, the, the reward, the thing that comes from fasting, from this discipline, is that you crave God's food. You crave the word of God as your true and better food, even more so than the food that feeds your physical body. When he says, man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God, that's an interesting phrase because essentially Jesus is, is no dummy, right? He knows that the human body needs food or it will perish, correct? He knows that. He designed the human body. And so he knows that's true. And yet he says, you don't live by this alone. You live by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Which what he's essentially saying is this. In the same way that your body needs food or it will die, your soul needs the word of God or it will die. And if you have to choose between the two, choose to feed your soul with the word of God rather than your body with the food that exists on earth. Because it's far more important that your soul would live than that your body would live. That's what he's getting at in this text. So what, when we kind of, kind of combine those two, Matthew chapter six and Luke chapter four, not to be overly complex here, right? If we combine them, what we learn is the reward that we get from fasting in the way that God calls us to fast is that we learn to long for his word. We learn to love and long for him and we divest ourselves or disconnect ourselves from the pleasures of the world that tend to draw us away from him. That's the first thing that we see about fasting here is that it's designed, it is designed to cause us to crave our true food. The second thing we see is in that phrase when he says that your fasting may not be seen by others. And we've seen, we've seen already, I commented already, that he calls for fasting to be this private thing, this thing that you do with the Lord and that you're not making others aware of. And you might ask, well, why is that important, right? Why would it matter if other people knew or didn't know? I mean, one, he's trying to, trying to help disconnect them from sort of that spiritual pride that comes up, right? When we're faithful in disciplines, that can happen sometimes. But the thing that I, I want you to see is that one of the important things that comes with fasting that's so rich and so good is that when you make it a rhythm in your life to every week or every other week where you say, okay, this is a time period where I'm fasting from food, what you're doing is you are having something that is a private one-to-one -one thing with you and God that exists in your regular spiritual rhythm that nobody else knows about. And you know when you have, like, if you're married and you have intimate moments with your spouse, conversations that you have with no one else and things you share with them that you share with no one else, what does that do with you and them? It makes you closer, Right? Don't you love thinking about all the things that your spouse knows about you that no one else knows? 
You're like, this is just me and them. That's it. And we share it with each other. And it's, it's the specialness of that unique covenant relationship. The same is true when we have these unique moments with God. When we craft out or we carve out these, through these rhythms, this space with God, when you fast and nobody knows you're fasting except you and the Lord, you are having this unique space with him where you're in dialogue with him. He knows that you're seeking after him and craving him and longing for him and no one else knows it. So there's no other reward that you're seeking. You're not seeking after the accolades of men or an attaboy or an girl. You are just pleased to be with God and to serve him and to walk with him. And that will breed a closeness to him when you do fasting the way he calls you to do fasting. Now the other side of that, okay, go to Colossians chapter two. And I debated whether to do this one or not because we're going through the book of Colossians starting next week, so I'm totally stealing a sermon from myself in the future. But Colossians chapter two, verses 16 through 18 says this, kind of speaking about the other side, really a danger that can come with fasting, actually. He says this, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind. Now go down to verse 20. It says, If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why as if you were still alive in the world do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Referring to things that, are all, that all perish as they are used. According to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed, this is the key right here, these have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. All right, now, if you're following what he's saying there, you could read that and you could say, okay, Jesus in Matthew 6 and in Luke 4 seems to value fasting. He seems to talk about it, even assume that we are going to be fasting. But then I read Paul saying in Colossians chapter 2 that these sort of ascetic practices, do you know what ascetic practices are? They are kind of the practices of deprivation. We're going to deprive the body, right? And so he says these kinds of practices don't have any value against the indulgence of the flesh. So we probably are prompted to say, well, which is it? Is fasting valuable? Fasting would be a, a, a deprivation type practice, wouldn't it? To deny the body food is, is something like asceticism. So the question becomes, well, what, what's the difference? And the difference is in understanding the, the context of Colossians chapter two, where essentially Paul is arguing against a group of people who have said, you should never, in, you should never enjoy any of God's good gifts. Is food a good gift from God? Absolutely, right? Should it be enjoyed? Yes, absolutely. But we fast from period to period, we fast in rhythms because foregoing that pleasure, that right and good enjoyment, allows us to fix our enjoyment upon God, as we've already seen. But to always forego it, to always live an ascetic lifestyle, only promotes our own self-righteousness. That's what Paul is getting at in Colossians chapter two. All it does is cause you to say, I'm so good and so disciplined that I can essentially create... I can create religious faithfulness in and of myself. And all that causes you to do is love yourself, not love God. 
And when that happens, then he says, that is of no usefulness in fighting against the indulgences of the flesh. In other words, he says, all these ascetic practices, all this denial of the body actually does not produce what it's intended to produce, which is a disconnect from a love of the pleasures of the world that tempts you away from God. So he's not arguing against the spiritual rhythm of fasting, but what he is saying is there is a danger that can come into play where you practice something like fasting in such a way that it only makes you more self-righteous rather than making you depend upon and love God more. Now, the reason I say that's one of the things we need to know in order to put this rhythm in place in our life is that you have to be careful that as you engage in fasting and put your heart before the Lord in it, that you're doing it in such a way that it's causing you to love and grow in him and in humility towards him and towards others, not in a way that causes you to feel like, aren't I really spiritual? Because look at how good I am that I can fast for two days, three days, for whatever it is, right? So there's a danger that Colossians is warning us about on the other side of that, all right? Now, let's talk about just practically what this looks like, all right? Those are some of the things for us to be aware of as we fast, and I'll give you a couple practical ideas now about what that might look like. The first thing I wanna tell you is be prepared for this to be hard, okay? I think many people have good intentions going into fasting, and they, they undersell how difficult it will be. Look, we are not in the habit in this culture of denying ourselves anything we desire, are we? When we feel a desire for something, our, our normal response is to satisfy that desire pretty quickly, never to delay the gratification of that desire. And we're probably tricking ourselves if we believe we're that much different than the culture at large around us. That's just our normal practice. Fasting will be hard because we are not used to denying ourselves the things that we desire, putting them off for a season so that we might feast upon God, okay? Now, a couple things. Begin with food. That's a great spot to begin. It's the biblical assumption more than any other thing that we are called to fast from. Food tends to be the thing that is used as the example in scripture. So let's just call ourselves to, that's a great place to begin our experience and our practice of this rhythm of fasting. If you've never fasted before, let me recommend picking one meal during the week, somewhere in the week. Maybe a lunch, maybe it's a dinner. Sometime, someplace where you can get away and pray during that time and seek the Lord and be with him rather than partaking of food and just do that one day a week. Now, perhaps you might move past that then to fasting for a 24-hour period. I, I, I always recommend from dinner to dinner to fast, eat your dinner meal, and then begin your fast at the end of that and fast until dinner the next day. 24 hours is a, is a good you know, rhythm to kind of get into. One day a week, 24 hours without food where you know you can seek the Lord and be with him. But again, these are not mandates. These are just suggestions. Yes, church? The point is that you would meet with God and you would establish these rhythms as he guides you in the establishment of them. The next thing I would say in fasting is then once you kind of have started that practice, that rhythm of fasting, include technology. Include technology. Uh, you know, I referenced a couple weeks ago a great book by Andy Crouch. I'll, I'll reference it again called The TechWise Family. Has a lot of great suggestions about how we might handle technology uh, in a little bit more biblical way, in a way that helps create margin in our lives rather than being driven by it. And so um, one of the things my family's trying to put in place is something he suggests, which is we are working on an hour a day, a day a week, and a week a year with no technology. So put away the phone, put away the TV, put away the internet, and just 
you know, I'm not turning off the air conditioning yet. We haven't gone that far, right? But to go, but to practice that rhythm, and here's, here's what I think you'll find, church. I think you will find that uh, a peace of mind will come to you if you will be intentional about a discipline of fasting, a rhythm of fasting from technology. We get so used to having information at our fingertips that the world moves pretty fast, and one of the things that helps us remember that God's in control and that everything's gonna be okay is just to take a break from those things and to say, I, I regularly put those things away I pray, and I would encourage you when you put those things away to not just do it and then consume something else, but to put that technology away and use that time and space to build into relationships, to build into you know, even physical health, right? To do things other than consume during that time. Right? Don't trade consumption of technology for consumption of something else. Use that time differently. And that has been helpful to us and continues to be one that challenges. We do not get that perfect, by the way, okay? We have failures with that. Some days we go, okay, we didn't do it very well today, but we continue to press into it to want it to be a rhythm that we're living in. The last one I'll say is this. I would encourage you, you know, to think technology, to think in terms of food, but then to, as another piece to add into kind of a rhythm of fasting is to fast from buying things, to fast from buying things, from purchasing, to have, a, whether it's a, this is a day where we don't purchase anything every month or every week or whatever it might be, but to say, even to say like when we revolve, if we're with friends that day, we're gonna revolve our time together around things that didn't cost us any money. We didn't, we didn't revolve ourselves around purchasing stuff or going to the movie together or doing, we didn't purchase our fun, we just established time together in relationship differently than that. So to think about you know, adding those kinds of rhythms of fasting from those things so that as you kind of come back into them, you can enjoy them and partake of them uh, and delight in those good gifts from God. So those are a couple things I want you to be aware of in terms of fasting. Now, let's talk about the second uh, rhythm, which is Sabbath rest. Sabbath rest. I wanna talk about that, this a little bit. The most common question that I get when people ask me about Sabbath is this, and I bet you've asked it or you've heard someone ask it, which is just this, what counts as rest, right? So when people think about establishing this idea of a day of rest in their schedule, they almost always invariably ask, well, can I do this or not do that? The first thing we should notice by asking like what counts as rest means that we don't know much about rest, right? Like if I say, what is the color blue? You know what it is, right? Why? Because you've experienced the color blue, You've seen it, you know what it looks like, right? When I say rest, you need to rest, and you say, well, what counts as rest? I'd say, well, then we have no experience of rest. We, we haven't done much of it if we have to ask, well, what is it and what isn't it, right? So let's look at Exodus chapter 20. In fact, let me just summarize. We looked at Exodus 20, verse eight through 11 last week, and what we saw, the first thing we need to understand about Sabbath rest in order to build our life around it is what he says in Exodus chapter 20 where God says, as he's giving the law, he says, I am God, I created the earth in six days, and then I did what, church? And then I rested, right? And we examined that last week. We looked at the idea that God didn't rest because he was tired or needed refreshment. God rested because his work was complete, because it was done. And then he commanded us to have a Sabbath rest because he took one. And so one, God's wired us and designed us in a way that we need rhythms of work and then rest, work and then rest. We can trust that if he's commanding that we take it, 
that he's telling us that because he knows we need it because he's designed us. The second thing though, is that we remember, we figure out or we learn what the true purpose of Sabbath rest is from that instruction that he's not telling us to rest because he, just because he knows we're tired. He's telling us to rest from our work because he rested from his work, meaning it was complete so that everything that he needed to provide for us, he has provided And when we rest, what we remind ourselves, and when we put down our regular work through which we provide for ourselves and we choose to rest from that for a period, what we are reminded of is God is the one who ultimately provides for me, which means taking Sabbath rest is all about learning to trust God. He will provide. He is enough. I don't have to continue to work, 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 work so that I can be okay. God will take care of it. I mean, I'm gonna make less money. You know, if I work those extra hours, if I put those extra hours into that business that I founded, we would get ahead. We would be further down the road. We would be closer to being profitable, right? I say, no, I'm gonna trust God. He's the one that's gonna provide. So that's the first thing is to remember that Sabbath rest is not just about following a rule so you don't get tired. Sabbath rest is about learning to train our hearts to trust God. The second thing we see is in Mark chapter two, and you can flip to your New Testament. In Mark chapter two, verse 23, through chapter three, verse six. As I get there. So in Mark chapter two, Jesus gives us a teaching about this. And you remember that it was, it was, the Sabbath that created a lot of trouble for Jesus with the religious elite. Remember this, when you read the New Testament and you see Jesus, he seems to be just disregarding some Old Testament teaching on Sabbath or at least what the Pharisees thought the Old Testament taught about Sabbath. Remember always that Jesus said, I came to fulfill the law, right? Not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. So Jesus's practices around Sabbath are a fulfillment of the law as it was was intended by God, not a disregarding of the law. And that's important as we see what he does. In chapter two, verse 23, it says, one Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar, the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which it is not lawful for any but the priests to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, so this is the lesson now that he wants them to learn from what David did. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. In other words, the Sabbath didn't exist so that man would follow some some writ protocol. The Sabbath was made for the good, for the benefit of human beings because they needed it and it was for them, not them for it, right? So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Now there he's claiming his authority as the son of man, which is a term out of the book of Daniel, which essentially he's claiming to be God there in a way. And so he's saying, I'm the one who determines what righteousness looks like in this area, not you. And then he goes on. Now this is, he's gonna illustrate this now in something that happens at the beginning of chapter three and just look at what that is. It says, again, he entered the synagogue and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. Do you see the irony of that? 
Religious leaders who should love and care for people who are hurting are more concerned about whether or not Jesus is gonna give them ammunition about his breaking the Sabbath than they are about the fact that this man has a withered hand. And they're not amazed at all that Jesus has the ability to heal him. As if they don't recognize that this points to who Jesus is, that they even expect that he can do it. Verse three, and he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. And he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart and said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against them how to destroy him. So that's just a lesson in foolishness, by the way, from religious leaders. But the thing that we can see about the Sabbath there, church, that I want you to understand is that we're essentially learning two things about the purpose of Sabbath. Number one is what you already saw in Exodus chapter 20. It is designed to help us trust God more fully, more deeply. But the second thing we learn when Jesus teaches is that, look, he's gonna heal this man because he, he wants the broken image of God in this human being that's shattered by sin and destroyed, he wants to bring about its restoration. And so Sabbath rest is about restoring the image of God in us and in others. Sabbath rest is about restoring the image of God that we, that we had in the garden before sin entered the world, right? If you ask, the term rest is connected to the term restoration, right, or restore. So what are we being restored to, Right? It's not just we're getting our energy level, our tanks filled up. What we're being restored to when we rest is the image-bearing nature of God that has been ours because we're designed in that image and he wants to bring rest to us so that that image might be more fully displayed in us. So think about what that means when we talk, what do we do on the Sabbath and what do we not do, right? Well, I would encourage you as you think about the purpose of Sabbath then to revolve Sabbath rest around putting down your regular work so that you trust God to provide, right? And also figuring out ways to use the Sabbath so that you are restored more fully into the image-bearing nature of God that is yours and also so that others would be restored. In another place, Jesus teaches that if your ox falls into a well on the Sabbath, aren't you gonna pull the ox out, right? Like, so he's saying there's a type of work that you would do that's just right and good to do on the Sabbath. It's not, the point is you're missing the point when you say, nope, leave the ox in the pit. Nope, leave the guy with the withered hand. He's like, you're missing the point. The point is restoration to the image-bearing nature of God. So we seek to see that restored. Now, a couple things you'll find about how this takes place, right? Part of the way you bear the image of God is the work that you do. You do a certain type of work because you bear God's image and you were made to work and you display him when you do that work. When you take rest from that work, you're not just learning to let God teach you to trust him to provide. You're also gonna be more joyful going back into that work. When you put it down for a season and say, I'm not gonna do it, you will find that you walk back into that work and rather than it feeling trivial or perhaps like toil, you will find that even though it may be hard, you will find that there is more joy in the doing of that work because you find that you are feeling restored and refreshed and who doesn't wanna enjoy their work more, yes? You will enjoy your work more if you will make a rhythm of Sabbath in your life. Last thing I wanna say on this with the time that we have left, because I wanna make sure that we have time to pray for John and Terry uh, today, which we're gonna do, and then have a, a reception time with them. 
Last thing I want to point out is if you have kids, I know that's not everybody, but if you have kids, okay, the question becomes, how do you help Sabbath rest come into their life? Um, And I think this is deeply important because they're not yet, uh, you know, most of them probably are not providing for themselves, right? They may have a job, but they're not ultimately paying for the food that's on the table or the roof over their head. So they're not needing to learn to trust God uh, by, you know, resting from the work that provides for them. You provide for them. So the question is, well, how do we bring Sabbath rest into their lives? And the thing I would say is this. Every single one of your kids, my kids, has a place from which they derive value and identity and meaning in life. And it's usually the things that they're best at, their practices. Typically, I would say, in our typical context, it's going to be sports. It's going to be music or drama, right? Theater, something in the arts, right? Or it's going to be academia, right? If they excel with the books. It's going to be something in those realms typically and you need to help them establish Sabbath rest by putting those things down and away for a season so that they learn that their identity is not established in those things and through those things but through God himself. That that's where it's found. And with that, church family, can I just say this? Your kids' activities will drive your schedule if you let them, yes? And you know that's true. You need to establish your patterns of Sabbath rest. You need to, as parents, establish the patterns of the pace of your home and don't allow your kids' activities to then dictate that changing. You work your kids' schedule around the rhythms you establish as a family, not vice versa. It's a good thing when you say to a coach, my my son can't be there on Sunday because we have a rhythm and we we won't vary from it. It's a good thing when you say, I guess we're not gonna be in that play because it, it does not fit within the rhythms we have established as a family. Now, I'm not saying you can't ever make adjustments to the rhythms, you can, but what I find is that often we are reactionary and we just react to the things that come at us and then we lose the rhythms and when we lose the rhythms, we're no longer connecting the dots that make a Christ-shaped life. So let the rhythms be the thing that are in place and that are firm and bedrock and then establish what else goes around them, right? So my students, right, my students, my Messiah students in particular, college, there's 8,000 things to be a part of at Messiah College. I know there are, right? You figure out your rhythms and you walk in those and then you figure out what can be added on additionally to them. But don't just say yes to everything that comes your way because somebody asks you to do it. Right? Establish those rhythms. Okay. I'm gonna pray for us and then I'm gonna ask our worship team to come up and we're gonna sing a song and then afterwards we have uh, a pastor on staff that's been with us for 19 years who is retiring here in the next couple weeks and so we wanna send him off with prayers and thankfulness and there's a reception in the lobby today, some cake out there. We wanted you to just stop by and say hello and thank you to him as well. So let me pray and then we'll worship together and then close with a time of prayer. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word. And I pray, Lord, that whatever I've said that's been helpful, let it just kind of land, Holy Spirit, in our hearts. Anything that hasn't been, just let it move right on. Any suggestion that I've made trying to build off biblical truth that is not uh, life-producing or helpful, just let that pass right away from our minds. We trust you, Lord. We look to you to implement these rhythms in our life And we say we want to be intentional about it because we want to grow in love and affection for you and in faithfulness to you. And so we look at these things that you've given us, these rhythms that you've called us to in our lives. And we trust that when we're faithful to them, that you will be faithful to fan the flame of affection that is in our hearts for you and and turn it into a raging fire. That's what we desire.
We pray it in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.